Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 12th to 18th of July, 2021. Before getting into our news updates for the week, a special shout out to our good friends at Spacewatch.Global and GoTikonauts, two excellent sources of space industry news. Also, a happy belated birthday to my sister, uh, the 12th of July being the beginning of this week. It's a good reminder. So uh, that being said, this week we have five updates to bring you. Uh, so we will bring you updates on China's lunar samples. We will bring you an update from Deep Blue Aerospace, an update on Tencent's space program, some information on the combination of the space industry and Hainan Yeshupai. Uh, but first, John will bring us some updates on the recent space plane activity from Cask. And just a small reminder, if you have not done so already, we have a handful of other news updates this week that are only available in our newsletter. So go and sign up. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Thank you. So, John, space planes, what's uh, what's going on with CASC and their space plane plans? Yes, that was definitely, I think, the biggest news last week. We saw that China had successfully completed the launch and the flight of a suborbital space plane on July the 16th. Now, unfortunately, not much else is known because the press release from China was quite short, but observers basically seem to be hinting at a prototype for, of a vertical takeoff, horizontal landing, a uh, first stage space plane, which could typically have a second stage attached to it. Um, and this could look potentially similar to a configuration that was explored by DARPA and Boeing called the XS-1, also called the uh, Phantom Express, which had adopted a similar launch architecture and strategy, but unfortunately was canceled in 2020. So back to China, this um, vertical takeoff horizontal landing first stage architecture would make sense because it does seem to match with um, you know, the step one of the three-step space plane roadmap that was presented by Long Le Hao. And uh, so Long Le Hao is the chief engineer of the Long March rockets at Calt. And this presentation was at Hong Kong University a couple of weeks ago. And so on this presentation from Long Le Hao, we saw that step one seems to be a vertical takeoff horizontal landing first stage using traditional rockets and carrying what looked like a classical second stage. And step two would be a space plane uh, second stage, meaning that the second stage also would be able to land um, horizontally. And step three would be this single stage to orbit combined cycle engine space plane. So the third step would definitely be something because really unprecedented from a technical standpoint. Um, I think another noteworthy takeaway here from this piece of news this week is um, China's persistence with going forward with space plane technology as a solution to, uh, you know, launch vehicle reusability, because we've seen SpaceX really, um, you know, demonstrating over the five, 10 years that vertical takeoff, vertical landing is something that's economically viable. And from a technical, from a feasibility standpoint, it seems it seems OK, it doesn't seem too hard. Of, of course, it's easier, um, you know. Uh, said than done, but uh, anyway. Um, and so it's interesting that China is persisting with space plane technology. And one reason ca that could explain this is if there were some non-commercial uses for space planes. And this could also explain, uh, you know, all the secrecy that's surrounding the launch of uh, China's space planes. And maybe a parallel we can do is, um, for example, the U.S. We have in the U.S. we have the U.S. Air Force that's uh, working with the X-37B already for a couple of years now, and this is a very secretive program. And so, you know, maybe China has similar interests for space planes. 
We don't know. Worth noting also, there's a different space plane that was launched by China on September 2020, so not even a year ago. And uh, again, not much else is known here, but we know that it was launched on board a Long March 2F. So this seems to be a second stage uh, space plane, which does recall the second step of the Long Le Hao three-step um, space plane roadmap. Um, and final point also, a couple of weeks, maybe months ago, we also reported China performing tests for engine pre-cooling technology. And this is really a key technology and a key milestone for combined cycle engines, because this is type of um, you know propulsion technology that's used in single stage to orbit, you know, full-fledged space planes. So we really see China are working on all fronts of space plane technology, first stage, second stage, pre-cooling, et cetera, et cetera. And so it'll be interesting to see in coming years if China is able to, you know, make a, an actual space plane operational. And just a last point to add, and then I'll let you uh, take us into the, the lunar samples, which is a fascinating story. But um, as I recall, one of the five cloud projects of Kasich also involved a space plane, right? Was that Kuaiyun or, or? Yeah, it's Tangyun. Kuaiyun. Anyway. Tangyun, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see, I mean, if there's such a level of apparent support for this uh, technology, just generally con as a, con you know, conceptually speaking, um, you know, maybe we will get some more activity from Kasich because as far as I know, that has been a relatively quiet program up until now. So, um, we'll be on the lookout for the, uh, for the Tangyun. Yeah. 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 That, that is true. Um, and you also have the South China Morning Post that reported about a, a hypersonic plane that would be able to carry 10 passengers by 2035. So I didn't mention that, but, um, yeah, there, there are really a lot of space plane projects out there in China. I think that a lot, quite a few of them are not feasible. Typically just the certification that would be behind making a 10 to 100 passenger a hypersonic aircraft in, in less than, you know, in, in, I think the, the horizon, time horizon timeline is like, uh, 10, 10 years, something like that. That does not seem very feasible to me, especially when you consider that, you know, the C919, for example, for Comac has been in development, uh, for, for over 10 years now. And, you know, it's still airlines haven't received actual, actually the first airplane just yet. So, um, so we'll have to see. Um, moving on to our next piece of news on lunar samples. We saw that the Chinese National Space Agency, CNSA, held a ceremony on July the 12th for the first distribution of lunar samples to research institutions. So these lunar samples were part of the 1.731 kilograms that were gathered by the uh, Chang'e 5 mission at the end of 2020 and returned to Earth uh, in early 2021. And so for this first attribution of samples, a total of 17.4764 grams were lent um, to 30, uh, sorry, to 13 research institutes for 31 applications. And so 17 grams-ish, that's barely 1% of the precious samples that were returned from the moon. Um, apparently, this was out of a total of 85 applications. So that means that barely 36.5% of the applicants actually made it past the acceptance review. So that seemed quite strict. And um, so Quoting China, the, the CNSA here, applications had to hold important scientific significance. It was also evaluated if the research plan was feasible and whether the applicant had relevant research capabilities, end of quote. Um, we also know that CNSA had prepared 44 samples and not, um, you know, and not 31. And so this suggests that some of the samples were not applied for and others uh, were applied for by um, many institutions. So very likely all of these samples were uh, different from one another. Another point that was interesting, I felt when I, when, when looking into this news is the precision that was used when describing each sample. You know, we get a precision of a 10,000th of a gram showing just how precious um, these samples are. And if we do a little thought exercise here, let's imagine that, you know, the Chang'e 5 mission costs billions of dollars. I'd say $4 billion. 
And, um, you know, we got 1.731 kilograms back. And so that would mean that each gram is worth over 2 million RMB. And so that really makes it clear why, you know, the appeal to try and go down to the smaller digits. Um, and so the happy few who got these samples, so as mentioned, there were 13 research institutes. I'm not going to, um, you know, list them one by one, although I will put them up on the screen and they'll also be in the show notes. Um, something that's interesting to note when you look at this list is that um, you have some really big names of China's space research. Uh, typically, you have CAST, you have NSCC, you have the Purple Mountain Observatory and US, USTC maybe. Um, but otherwise, really, the, the bulk of these research institutes are actually geosciences institutes, eight out of 13. And makes sense. You know, we're talking about lunar soil, you know, samples, right? Um, and something that was also um, you know, w worth noting is the seemingly highly specialized institute among the 13. That, that's the Institute of Uranium um, Geology, and which could hint at research on the presence of helium-3. We know that helium-3 is a, a component mm. that's seldom found on Earth, and that's essential for a typically nuclear fusion. Last point, this time on foreign research institutes. Interestingly, um, we, we found out that foreign research institutes were also allowed to apply, although no formal foreign application was received to CNSA, according to Pei Zhaoyu, who's the deputy director of CNSA's Lunar Exploration and Space Engineering Center and director of the Lunar Sample Management Office. So um, I, I heard there was one application from non-mainland Chinese universities. Uh, there was one from from Macau, the Institute of the uh, University of Science and Technology, but, yeah, but it was the must. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't accepted. Must. But yeah, go ahead. M-U-S-T. What a university indeed. Um, yeah, no, very important to make sure to measure out that, like, you know, that last 0. 0.0004 grams. That's, uh, and I guess, to, you know, one point as it relates to the 13 uh, organizations that were able to get the samples, it would have been quite a shame if CAST had been denied, <laughs> given the role that they played in getting those samples back to Earth. It would have been kind of like unlucky CAST. But no, they were they they made the cut, so good for them. Um, not a whole lot of additional points from my side on the lunar samples, but first, I think um, there was an interesting quote in in the uh, in one of the press releases talking about the fact that the particles of lunar soil are so fine that there are concerns about the particle becoming charged by tools handling it, leading to some loss of you know individual grains of of lunar sample, which is just it, it's it's phenomenal to think how infinitesimally infinitesimally small those samples must be. Um, so indeed, we, we did hear from the deputy director of the third phase of the lunar program and the chief designer of ground systems, Li Chunlai, uh, who mentioned that basically they're trying to minimize the amount of direct contact between tools and the samples, which must make analysis of the samples rather less straightforward, but uh, indeed, got to be careful. Uh, we also did see during the press conference a reference to the Wolf Amendment, which was passed by the U.S. Congress in 2011 and largely prohibits NASA from cooperating with the CNSA or any other Chinese actors. And we heard from the director of the Lunar Sample Expert Committee and academician of the CAS, Zhu Ruxiang, who basically said that because of the Wolf Amendment, China's lunar research had been delayed and kind of restricted, uh, but now they're able to do it themselves. So, um, yeah, very, uh, very big accomplishment. And definitely uh, those, you know, those ten thousandths of a gram are, uh, they're counting every one of them. So, Definitely good luck to, to all of the researchers and congratulations to the 13 uh, organizations that were able to get their hands on some of those lunar samples and in particular to CAST because, you know, without CAST, this would have been rather less easy. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So nothing else on my side on the uh, on the lunar samples. Um, shall we move into the, the commercial launch sector and what's going on with Deep Blue Aerospace? 
Absolutely. So two weeks ago, uh, we had predicted that Deep Blue Aerospace was very close to a static fire test, and this was not out of the blue. Um, you know, they, they had been posting stuff on their social media. And indeed, on July the 13th, Deep Blue Aerospace announced the completion of the first um, static fire test of the company's Nebula M prototype rockets. And so this Nebula M, as we, we explained in two episodes ago, this is really a very small single stage rocket with the sole purpose of, you know, helping DBA develop vertical takeoff, vertical landing technology. Um, and this is because DBA's one of the DBA's rocket, the uh, Nebula 2, is a liquid-filled rocket, and that will have to be um, reusable from day one. So that's why they're doing these hops in parallel of developing their actual rockets. Um, and according to DBA's news release, the test was barely 10 seconds. So this is really a first static fire test, and it aimed at testing the coordination between the Lating 5 Carolox engine that's powering the Nebula M and also the other systems on board. And according to the report, apparently the data retrieved showed that all systems we're nominal, and so this includes engines, hydraulics, um, electrical, telemetry, and control systems. And so coming up next, very likely in coming weeks, maybe months, is a much longer variable thrust uh, static fire test of the Nebula M. Indeed, and uh, I think DBA as an acronym is kind of the antithesis of uh, of Jizij, Jojo Yunjian. I think DBA is much much simpler. <laughs> I would also note um, so the test that was taken uh, that was undertaken by DBA this week. Uh, so apparently it was carried out at the Tongchuan Commercial Space Base, so the Tongchuan Shangye Hangtian Jidi, uh, which is in Tongchuan, Shanxi Province. So it's a little bit uh, outside of, of Xi'an and. Um, it's just interesting to note that, you know, Tongchuan as a city of 900,000-ish people has uh, justification to build its own aerospace base. I guess it also, to a certain extent, is a comment on um, the kind of clustering that we're starting to see among sort of cities that are close to one another. So Xi'an being a very large historical center for China's propulsion and sort of general space sector, um, you have a lot of commercial launch companies that have R&D centers in Xi'an. And again, Tongchuan being, I suppose, about less than two hours drive from Xi'an, um, you have this kind of spillover effect where there's apparently a commercial aerospace or space base in, uh, in Tongchuan. And uh, that is where DBA has chosen to, to set up their operations. So uh, I don't know when the borders are going to reopen, but it would be quite interesting to have the chance to go and check out Tongchuan if that, uh, if that day were to come. So um, anything else, John, from your side on DBA or shall we move into Tencent? Let's let's hear about Tencent. Very cool stuff also. Tencent, definitely big news. So we saw this week during the 2021 World AI Conference in Shanghai. I apologize, last week, July 8th. Um, so Tencent, uh, via its CEO, Pony Mahuatang, announced that it would launch a star exploration program or a uh, in collaboration with the Nas National Astronomical Observatories of China or the NAOC, a branch of the Chinese Academy of Sciences managing most, but not all of China's observatories. And this includes a large number of optical and radio telescopes, such as the massive 500-meter aperture radio telescope in Guizhou called FAST, and it is the largest such telescope in the world. And so digging a little bit more into this cooperation agreement, so it, it, it focuses on astronomy, and astronomy is obviously one of the very data-intensive branches of space sciences, where you have um, you know, things like AI, computer power, cloud computing they're all necessary to, to get, you know, to take bigger steps in terms of astronomy. And so imagining the dozens and dozens of professional telescopes that are continuously pointing at different areas of the sky and capturing many terabits of data and lots of Starlink uh, satellites streaking across in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And this all needs processing. You need a lot of artificial intelligence and a lot of computing power. And, uh, you know, if there are a handful of companies in China that have such computing power, Tencent would have to be one of them. And so clearly um, they have a role to play here. 
That being said, I think the timing of this announcement is interesting. So what we've seen over these last several months is a continuing crackdown on Chinese tech companies by uh, by the central government, Tencent among them. So this is for things like sort of anti-monopoly kind of regulations and moving into a rather sensitive area like the space sector at this particular time is a fairly bold move and particularly doing so uh, via an announcement from the company's CEO, who was known to be a bit more low profile than some of his peers. And I would point out that during Ma Huatang's speech, uh, which was apparently delivered via a WeChat for Business voice message and lasting about 145 seconds, he highlighted Ma highlighted the importance of AI in improving people's lives and also highlighted Tencent's emphasis on sustainable AI innovation. So basically what we have seen at the AI, uh, at the World AI Conference is Tencent uh, agreeing to use its computing power and different, uh, you know, various AI technologies to help astronomical research. And I think the last point that I would mention from the World AI Conference was that there was another speech from Chinese tech uh, giant Robin Lee, CEO of Baidu. Um, and he gave a speech during which he mentioned the importance of AI and computing for the Zhurong rover and then made a connection between the technology involved with Zhurong and the technology required for autonomous vehicles, which Baidu is developing. Um, so definitely interesting to see these two CEOs of two of China's larger tech companies coming out and um, talking about wanting to get more involved in space. Um, John, what did you think about that? I think Tencent's strong skills in AI and cloud will definitely benefit the NAOC, the, you know, the National Astronomical Observatories of China. I'm not sure exactly what's in it for Tencent because it's really a specific, uh, you know, uh, vertical. But considering, as, as Blaine, you've said, you know, the amount of data that's to be processed and really the size of the NAOC, this deal at the very least represents a very nice additional big customer for Tencent Cloud and for Tencent AI services and probably a good um, PR event, which is why I think uh, Mahuatang was, was involved. Um, and also as an amateur astrophotographer myself, who uses quite a bit of software and computer processing. Also, this is a shameless plug for my astrophotography Instagram that I'll put up here. Um, I, I mean, I can definitely only rejoice at the idea of such a partnership uh, that involves AI and astronomy because th this is really a definitely a very promising branch um, for, for astronomy in the future. And I mean, thinking about what could be in it for Tencent, the other thing that could be quite interesting is, you know, if there are some significant discoveries made or otherwise, if there's some big announcements uh, involving, you know, Tencent do, doing analytics on, on the data, um, I suppose that's good press. Yeah. And that's very good uh, kind of mm, helping to enhance the glory of the Chinese nation kind of press if Tencent is making these grand or helping to make these grand discoveries. So could be an angle there as well. But overall, definitely an exciting time to see China's uh, one of their largest tech companies getting more more involved. Yeah, and uh, on the year of the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party. So that was a symbolic year as well. Um, okay, let's, let's hear about Hainan. Hainan, there's a lot of stuff going on in Hainan. So we had Hainan uh, last week, they published the 14th five-year plan for the development of the high-tech industries in Hainan. And this included a strong emphasis on space. So on July 7th, the Hainan province uh, government officially released their 14th five-year plan for the development of high-tech industries. And this shed some light on the strategy in Hainan over the next five years for developing their economy. And of particular interest was a significant focus on the space industry. And it was quoted as being one of Hainan's 
three future industries alongside smart agriculture and marine engineering. Uh, so in an interview with the Hainan Daily, the head of the Provincial Department of Industry and Information Technology, so basically the provincial MIIT, uh, Yin Libo, mentioned that the plan, quote, promotes the development of rocket research and development, commercial satellite research, satellite navigation and other industries, and builds aerospace high-end product R&D and manufacturing bases, and, quote, aerospace plus industrial demonstration zones, end quote. Overall, the plan uh, aims to have a space sector in Hainan that is worth an annual output of 10 billion RMB by 2025. And so one of the cornerstones of this strategy is going to be the development of the Hain- uh, of the Wonchang International Aerospace City, which is located on the northeast corner of Hainan. And this already boasts China's uh, new generation launch center, the Wonchang Satellite Launch Center, uh, which is primarily for the launches of the Long March 5 to 8. Um, the province also plans to attract and concentrate space firms in this area, covering the design, manufacturing, and operations for rockets, and also specifically noting uh, plans for deepening cooperation with the Chinese Academy of Sciences, CASC, and others. And this closely resembles strategies that have been undertaken by other provinces that are trying to develop the local space industry, which is to say, you know, trying to attract large state-owned companies and have these kind of industrial bases and and have these sort of different incentives. And that being said, I would say Hainan is in a different position than any other Chinese province in terms of economy and geography and a little bit culture. And so first, I would say uh, Hainan, they have by a wide margin, uh, China's most famous coconut milk. So for anyone who has uh, been to a Chinese supermarket, there is the ubiqui- ubiquitous uh, thin black cans with the yellow font that can only mean one thing, the uh, the Hainan Ye Shu Pai, uh, or the local coconut milk, which is available on Amazon for about 27 US dollars for a 24 pack. I, I checked that uh, earlier. And uh, no, we are not sponsored. No, we are not sponsored, <laughs> but they are just that that good. Um, I would also note that the best dim sum that I've ever had in my life was had in uh, in Haikou, the capital of Hainan, in, in 2019. Um, on a more serious note, from an economic perspective, uh, in mid 2020, the central government announced plans for Hainan to become a Hainan free trade port, or a Hainan uh, Zio Maui Gang, uh, which aims to transform Hainan Island into a globally significant free trade port by 2050. And so you have now this combination of uh, you know provincial Provincial government incentives as it relates to space and the national government support of turning it into a free trade port, um, which are going to be interesting when combined. And I think the free trade port idea primarily was trying to and is trying to develop uh, one of China's less developed provinces. And it's also allowing, I think, for a somewhat higher degree of economic experimentation uh, in a more confined environment, which we will get to in just a moment. And so the free trade port incentives, uh, they include, you know, simplifying customs procedures, allowing for tariff exemptions on imported goods if more than 30% of the value add is done in the free trade port. And there's other just sort of general regulatory support, macro policies. So basically, a lot of things that are going on in Hainan that are going to probably help uh, in terms of the development of a space sector in some way. Uh, separate from the economy, I think Hainan is geographically unusual among Chinese provinces in that it is an island which provides some advantages and also disadvantages. So on the plus side, by virtue of being an island, uh, Hainan, again, it lends itself to a bit more economic experimentation. So basically, it's considerably easier to control the borders between Hainan and the rest of China than it would be to control the borders between, say, Guangdong and the rest of China. Uh, Its location relatively near the equator is also an advantage for launches. That being said, uh, being an island also has come with disadvantages for Hainan. So the infrastructure is less developed than in many parts of China, including telecoms, power generation, and public transport, all of which are going to be necessary to attract top talents and space companies. 
Uh, moving forward, it's entirely possible that the government of Hainan will invest tons of money into infrastructure and then also bring in some incentives for talents, of which they already have many incentives, and that this can contribute to a virtuous cycle of more talents coming to the island and then the island seeing more economic development and more opportunities which makes it more attractive for people to come to the island, etc. Um, so again, it's not entirely clear yet, but what we're seeing, it seems, is a lot of support at both the national and provincial level for not just the development of a space sector, but I guess the, the economy more generally. Uh, and back to the interview with uh, with Yindi Bo of the provincial MIIT, it's noteworthy that um, despite all the different space initiatives he mentioned, there was no mention of the space industry cluster in Sanya, which is in the southwest corner of Hainan. And so Sanya, it's a space cluster primarily focused on Earth observation. There's a big downlink station, uh, and it has very close relationships with the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which has a big facility in Sanya. And so we'll put a photo up of the, the ground station in Sanya, quite large, and it recently celebrated its 10th anniversary, uh, during which time it noted that it had increased, the, well, the, the CAS noted, they had increased the amount of data downlink by more than seven times uh, over that, that 10 years. Um, so yeah, moving forward, not entirely clear how these space industry developments are going to shake out in Hainan. Definitely a lot of challenges remain, but at the same time, they have excellent coconut milk and dim sum. So it's got, they've got that going for them. Uh, Jean, anything from your side on, uh, on Hainan? They also have quite nice beaches, uh, around Senya. Yes, they do. <laughs> I don't have anything. Well, it's, it's a Hawaii of China, yeah, right? Exactly. It's, uh, they, they call it the Hawaii of China as far as, and it's, there's definitely, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of retired Dongbei people have moved down to Hainan and, uh, and bought some flats and just kind of hanging out because it's the place to do that. So, and a lot of Russians um, as well. I, I went there a couple of years ago and there were a lot of bilingual signs in Sanyai. I don't have anything else that's space related on, on Hainan. Um, I think you covered it quite well. So um, maybe, maybe you can wrap up for this week. And just a last point, just yep. really briefly on there's one brief point on Hainan. I, one thing that I, I hear sometimes uh, in Hong Kong, but also China more generally, is that kind of the medium to long-term plan is to develop Hainan into kind of a, a second Hong Kong in the sense that you'd have a free trade port with, you know, quite um, low levels of regulation and a lot of sort of economic freedom and this kind of thing. And, and again, being a, an island and allowing some experimentation. So I don't know to what extent that is true, but um, it does seem like that is the general direction of, of travel. So, uh, you know, less regulation and uh, and more investment by the government. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, but yeah, I think that's all on Hainan from my side. Same for me. Well, so again, we have about seven more pieces of news, and those have not been covered for today. So if you have not signed up yet for our newsletter, and if you're interested even remotely in those seven pieces of news, it is a free newsletter. The only cost to you is the 30 seconds or so that it may take to go and subscribe. So again, if seven more pieces of news sounds even remotely interesting, that is a kind suggestion. Um, that being said, I think that's all for this week. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host, Jean Deville. And this has been another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup for the week of the 12th to 18th of July, 2021. Thank you, and we will see you next week. Thanks for watching and see you next week.